Welcome to the Voices of Freedom podcast. My name is Dennis Gill. I'll be your host today. And I thank you for checking us out, whether you're a first-time listener or you have been here before. Thank you very much for for giving us a try, giving us a listen. Uh, We're here to honor, educate, and inspire. uh, And we are here also to uh, entertain you a little bit. Uh, And I hope we can accomplish all of those things. Uh, The Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience. If you'd like to learn more about the Americans in Wartime Experience, uh, if you'd like to donate to what we're doing, because uh, we work exclusively from donations, and donations help keep us in business, if you will, it allows us to continue to conduct these interviews uh, like the one you're about to listen to. So please check us out on our website, www.americansinwartime.org. Again, you can donate, you can watch many of our interviews that we've conducted, you can check out our tank collection, you can uh, see what uh, upcoming events that we have uh, uh, later this year. Uh, We are located in Prince William County in Virginia, and we are currently building a brick-and-mortar museum uh, off of Interstate I-95. If you're familiar with the Northern Virginia I-95 area, uh, you've got the Marine Corps Museum, and then our museum, uh, which is currently under construction, will be about five miles north of that. And then about ten miles north of that will be the, or is, the Army Museum. So you'll have three museums within about 15 miles of each other once our museum is built. And we're hoping that it's built and open sometime late 2024 or early 2025 Um But either way, uh, you can check us out online. So, uh, we here at the Voices of Freedom uh, conduct oral history interviews with Americans who served during wartime or Americans who have an eyewitness account to uh, a wartime event. So, I'll give you a couple of examples. Obviously, if you served during combat in any war or any operation, uh, we would be interested in talking to you, and we probably have already talked to somebody. Uh, uh, we've, we've, we've interviewed people from almost every war and every, every uh, military operation, at least all the major ones, uh, since World War II up through the War on Terror. Um, so if, you've, if you served in any of those, uh, at any of those periods of time, uh, to include the Cold War, to include things like Operation Urgent Fury, uh, or, or any or any type of operation like that, um, uh, we'd be interested in talking to you. And again, we have conducted many interviews uh, with veterans of those operations. Perhaps you're an eyewitness to a wartime event. You I, you were an eyewitness to the attacks uh, in Pearl Harbor, uh, or you are an eyewitness to the attacks uh, on September 11, 2001. Maybe you're a first responder to those to those attacks. Again, we'd love to interview you and uh, and hear your story. If you would agree to sit down and talk to us, you will receive a copy of your interview in digital form, uh, and you can do whatever you want to do with that. Um, and you will also receive a limited edition challenge coin. We conduct most of our interviews in person. 
Uh, however, there are some interviews that we have conducted uh, via Zoom. Uh, again, we are located in the Northern Virginia area, so we travel to New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, um, Maryland, obviously, down into uh, Southern Virginia, Virginia Beach area quite often. But if you live outside of those areas, there's still an opportunity to be interviewed. And uh, you can find out more by checking us out on our website, uh, and we can get you some information on how you can be interviewed. Or perhaps you have a loved one who's interested in being interviewed as well. I do want to say this. No no, no service is, is too small. Uh, if you served at all in the military and you've got, a, again, a link to, to a combat event or a wartime experience, which practically anybody who served in the last 70 years does. Because, you know, if you served in uh, uh, Germany during world or during the Cold War, uh, you were obviously on the front lines of that war, and we want to hear your story. Um, so, if, again, if, if, if you're not in the Northern Virginia area, we can still accommodate your interview. All right, with all those pleasantries out of the way, let's get into today's interview. Uh, and it is, was conducted... A few years back with uh, Rebecca Mahalovich. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background before we before I get into her interview. Uh, we sit here in 2023, and uh, women in the military is very commonplace. Women are pretty much uh, been integrated into every aspect uh, of of the military. So it's not uncommon anymore when you talk to a to a, to a woman who is in the military. Um, it's you know they, again they're they're in pretty much uh, uh, everywhere in in the military. There there are some aspects of combat that they're not, um, but pretty much everywhere else. That was not the case thirty thirty five years ago, uh, when our uh, when Rebecca uh, enlisted into the Air Force back in nineteen eighty eight. Um, she went in as a, a open contract, which basically said to the recruiter and to the Air Force. Uh, I want to join the Air Force. I want to serve. You tell me where where I'm most needed, and um, and I'll go do it. And and that can be that can be a little dangerous <laughs> because they can put you in a place uh, in in a career field that they can't fill uh, because uh, it's not very pleasant, if you will. Uh, but Rebecca, she was very fortunate. She went in open contract, and she eventually uh, became a security policewoman uh, uh, with the security police. Uh, the, the job of the security police is to secure the, the bases. They're secure the flight line, secure the aircraft on the flight line. Uh, and back in 1988, when Rebecca uh, enlisted, that was not very common to have uh, women in that career field. In fact, in her unit, uh, she was the only female. Uh, and you can imagine some of the challenges that that, that, will, uh, that will bring about. Uh, but Rebecca, she handled it head on, and, and uh, if you... I had the chance to sit down and speak with her. She's very, she's a very strong woman. She's very confident in who she is. Um, so she had no issues uh, whatsoever uh, serving alongside men. Uh, she joined, or she enlisted in the Air Force in 1988. She went to Lackland for basic training, and after basic training, she went to Security Police School, uh, which also just so happens to be at Lackland. Uh, and uh, from there, she went to. Uh, Fort Dix, where she would learn uh, or go through Army infantry training. The the Air Force doesn't have infantry, uh, so they don't have an infantry school, but the Army obviously does. So that's where she attended Army infantry training. Uh, and then she was assigned to Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. 
And it was uh, then that uh, Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi army invaded Kuwait. And uh, she uh, recalls getting a phone call saying, hey, you guys need to meet in a hangar. You need, uh, there's going to be a briefing. And uh, all of her unit uh, met in the hangar. Uh, and they asked for volunteers. Uh, they were advised of what was happening, uh, that, the, that the invasion had occurred, that uh, the United States was going to send troops overseas, and we need some volunteers. So, uh, so Beck, uh, Rebecca volunteered <laughs> to be one of those, uh, one of those troops, uh, one of those security policemen that went overseas. So at 19 years of age, she talks about uh, getting prepared to go to Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, the basic things like pack all of your gear, get your immunizations. But the thing that really stuck with her was they were also instructed to write wills. And, you know, when you're 19 years of age, that's not something that generally you think about, writing a will. Uh, and it kind of hit home for her and the other uh, airmen what was about to happen. They were about to go off to war, and people die in war. Um, so that was kind of something that uh, was a little bit surreal for Rebecca and for some of the other airmen that she was with. Um, you know, again, we talked about it. There was there's a career field, uh, security police uh, in the Air Force, where there's not a whole lot of uh, women. Uh, when when Rebecca went overseas to Saudi Arabia, she served with 13 other men, and there was one bathroom and one shower. Uh, so they had to make up a sign to put on the door to notify everyone else that she was in there. Uh, and again, like I said earlier, she, she had no issues with it. And the, uh, the men that she served with, the fellow airmen, were all professionals, and there was no issues with them as well. Um, she arrived in Saudi Arabia in 1990, August of 1990, and they were originally told, hey, you're only going to be here for three months. Well, three months uh, turned into about nine months, and she says when they were sitting there watching Bob Hope uh, do his Christmas special in Saudi Arabia, they realized, okay, we're going to be here longer than longer than three months. Uh, and indeed they were. They were there uh, for, for nine months. Uh, Rebecca talks a, a lot about uh, some of the people that she met there, some of the friends that she made, uh, talks about some scud attacks, uh, the, the, the base that they were on. Uh, they were there to protect A-10s. She briefly talks about a pilot that was shot down and presumed dead. Uh, that's a very, very good story. Uh, she talks about wearing mop gear. If you're not familiar with mop gear, mop gear is what the troops would wear to protect themselves from chemical weapons. And if you've ever been in mop gear, it is, to say the least, not comfortable and very hot. And when the temperatures get up to about 130 degrees, the last thing you want to do is be in mop gear. But they knew the mop gear would protect them should Saddam Hussein choose to use chemical weapons, which it appears uh, from many reports that he probably did use the chemical weapons. Um, so the mop gear, despite being hot, despite being uncomfortable, you kind of live with it uh, and you kind of suck it up because it could mean the difference between you surviving and you dying. Um, so the fear of chemical weapons was there, so they wore it and they just lived with it. Um, but she says they took it off a more times than they can think of. Uh, and mop gear only only lasts once you take it out of the package for 30 days, and they were well beyond the 30 days. Uh, I told you they were there for nine months, so well beyond that 30-day period. Um, so the mop gear they were wearing was going to be less than optimal uh, should they ever uh, encounter chemical weapons. Uh, and again, Rebecca goes on to talk a little bit about her time there, and well, a lot about her time in Saudi Arabia. 
one of the things that's that's very interesting. I asked uh, I asked Rebecca uh, about her family. Her father was an Army veteran. He served during Vietnam, uh, and he gave her a piece of advice. And it's an interesting piece of advice. Uh, and he told her, "Don't be a hero." And, you know, that's kind of that, – that can be kind of counterintuitive because, you know, you serve in the military and, and you're there to protect uh, to protect uh, the interest of the United States. Uh, and, you know, there's many military uh, heroes out there, and, and we, we exalt those people that have become heroes, that have gone above and beyond the, the call of duty, if you will. Um, but her father told her, don't be a hero, and, and Rebecca kind of thought about it for a little bit, and then eventually she realized what he was – what he was alluding to, um, the heroes in the military, they don't come home. Uh, the heroes in the military are buried overseas in, in, in France, uh, and many other locations. So it, it, it made sense to her when she got to thinking about it. Okay. You know, just do your job and get home alive. Don't, don't be a hero. Just do what you were told, do what you're supposed to do and come home. Uh, and that's really good advice. Um, and uh, Rebecca did do her job. She did it well, and she did come home. So without further ado, without me talking about it uh, any further, because um, her story is something that you need to hear from her. Uh, uh, so uh, I leave you with our interview with Rebecca Mahalovich. Okay, this is Dennis Gill with the Americans of Wartime Museum. The date is 23 September 2017, and I'm conducting an interview with Rebecca Mahalovich, and we are at the Tank Farm in Noakesville, Virginia. If you can tell me your name and where were you born? Uh, my name is Becky Mahalovich, and I was born in Asmara, Ethiopia. Okay. And uh, what branch of the service did you serve in? I served in the United States Air Force. Air Force. Okay. Did you have any other family members that were uh, in the military at all? Yes, my father was in the Army. Okay. He served in any conflicts or he was in Vietnam. Vietnam, okay. Um, and what conflict or war did you participate in? I served in Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Okay. Um, when did you in, when did you join the Air Force? I joined in my junior year of high school, and I was in a delayed entry program, and I left for boot camp in December of 1988 after I turned 18. Okay. And why the military and why the Air Force? Um, my father was in the army and I was very proud right. and I didn't think college was for me and that was my next option. You know, why the Air Force? Why not the Army? Um, I looked at both the Army and the Air Force right. and the uh, my dad was luring me towards the Army of course because he was in the Army but right. um, the Air Force seemed to have more options for me. Okay. Did you know um, what you wanted to do when you went in the Air Force? No, I, I went in open general. I had okay. no idea what I wanted to do, and I left up to fate to decide right. what my career was going to be. And what, what did that end up being? Well, it's kind of funny. I ended up being assigned as a security policeman okay. during boot camp, and the Air Force only shoots one time. And during my one time of my 30 rounds, I was able to shoot. I didn't hit the target. Why they picked me to be security police is beyond what right. I can perceive, but right. <laughs> so, so when did they make that determination? Are you still in basic training, or yeah, yeah I was still in basic training. Okay. I think it's a, probably about the last week or so. You're told what job you have, okay. unless of course you signed and you already knew what job you had, but right. I didn't. Okay, so your basic training is in Lackland, right? And you go to security, it, police school, or in Lackland, in Lackland, same yes. place. 
Okay. And then we'll, after that, we go to Fort Dix, New Jersey, okay. and we go through part of uh, Army Infantry training. Okay. All right. What, what is the mission of uh, security police in the Air Force? What is the primary mission? Um, to defend the air base, the airstrip, the aircraft, and protect and serve. Right. Okay. So after after tra- how long is tra- training for that? Uh, I don't remember. I think it I think it was six weeks at Lackland, and then another six weeks at Fort Dix. Okay. Specific to security police, right? It's it's infantry because the Air Force doesn't teach infantry, right? And the law enforcement needs to learn that, and that's where we shot weapons and learn ground movement and you know yeah. trench holes and right. Okay, so where do you go from there? You complete your training, and now then I was assigned to be stationed at uh, Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. Okay, and what, talk, talk about that. What, what did you? What did you do when you're there? Well, I mean, you show up, you're 18 years old, right. and it's like a whole world. I I was young. I had a lot of responsibilities. Is this your first time, I mean, essentially yeah, away I, from home? Yeah, I, I turned 18 on your own and, and left home. Okay. Um, so how long are you at Maxwell? I was at Maxwell um, my whole tour. Okay. Except for when I was deployed to Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Okay. So talk about that. You hear about uh, Iraq invading Kuwait. Oh, we we had a all call. I remember I was working night shift. They woke us up. Of course, we all had telephones in our house then. <laughs> so if you answered your phone, then right. you went in there. Right. So we all got called into a big aircraft hangar, and they briefed us on what was happening. And they asked they were going to take volunteers first, and if they couldn't fill through volunteers, then they were going to pull people. Um, I quickly volunteered. I was a two or three gunner, and I knew they were only taking two two or three gunners from our squad. So I was hoping that I would have been chosen to go. Right. And um, we heard, I think it was the next day, which team was going to be going. Okay. Um, backtrack just a little bit. So you're you're we're, we're talking late eighties. You're female. In the military, specifically security police, are there a lot of females in that? In that, there wasn't on my base. I don't think there were in general a okay. lot. The back then, the security police school consisted of the Navy and the Marine Corps and the Air Force. We all went through the same right. security police training, and it was primarily men. Men, okay. Um, so you're a two or three gunner. What is that? It's a grenade launcher that hooked onto the bottom of like an M16. So your primary weapon is M16 and... What? A 203. 203. And what, did you have a carry sidearm at all? No, we didn't. No. I, I mean, as a police officer on base, we had a, a 9 mil, but right. not in the field. Okay. So so when you get... When they have this meeting in the hangar, is this right, is this right after Kuwait is invaded by Iraq or... I mean, is it that day? I mean, it must have been that day. I don't really remember. I mean, I was so young. We didn't watch the news. The world was pretty much at peace at that point. It was the last thing on everybody's mind, I think. But I just remember I was working midnight shifts, and we got called in. Nobody, you know, it was new to us. Right. I was 19 years old. Uh, Run me through a little bit of your mindset here. You're... Guys joining the military now, we're at war. They they know it. They know it. They're getting right. You know, you're going to Afghanistan or Iraq most likely if you join. 
At that time, though, we're not. Like you said, we're, we're right. Everything was kind of like our training. You know, it's like we're never going to need this. Right. We're not ever going to use this. And then some of it we did. Of course, most of the training we had was jungle training since it was post Vietnam. Right. But I mean, a lot of what we learn mentally, we learn in the field. Right. Okay. So you. You deploy at some point to. We deployed very shortly, like we were given all of our immunizations, and we had we were set in a group to write wills. And these are a bunch of 19, 20 year olds right. sitting at a table, trying to plan their funeral. We didn't. We weren't expecting that. Right. You know, when we volunteered, we weren't thinking about that. We were thinking of defending our country. Right. Right. So what's going through your mind at this point? I was like, my mom is going to have my head because she didn't know I had volunteered. Right. She didn't know I had an option not to go. Uh, I didn't tell her that. Right. <laughs> I don't know if she still knows. <laughs> My sister was getting married in a couple weeks. I was supposed to be in the wedding. Yeah. She's like, are you going to be back for the wedding? I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> so, so they don't know where you're going, obviously, right? They, operational security, they have no idea. No, we didn't even know we were go where we were okay. going. Okay. We, so, um, we, we shipped out very quickly, and we... Landed and we went from our base to Dover, and we were held there in like a holding for probably 24 hours, and then we were shipped off to Saudi Arabia. You know, a country that most of us, as a teenager, never knew where it even was on the map. Right. So, tell me about that. You're a female in Saudi Arabia. Well, they <laughs> they sent me over as a female security policeman, and. In Saudi Arabia, women couldn't do a lot of things, let alone carry a weapon. Right. And also, the military was not ready for women in the military. They didn't... I, When I arrived, I was the only female security policeman there. They didn't know where to put me. I lived in a tent with my squad of 13 men. Right. They had one bathroom and one shower. We had a sign on the shower. We flipped it around to say I was in there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was <laughs> very non-technical, but it seemed to work. Right. And it didn't bother me living with the men. I, I accepted it. That's what I chose to do. And I volunteered to go. Right. How about, what was their attitude towards it? The men didn't care. <laughs> the Saudis, they were bothered right. quite immensely. But the people I was stationed with, no. And I'm still friends with them today. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Voices of Freedom podcast. The Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience, a 501c3 dedicated to honoring, educating, and inspiring. The mission of the Voices of Freedom is to record and preserve the wartime oral histories of Americans, both civilian and military. If you'd like to learn more or to donate to our project, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. Right. Now, what base were you stationed at? I was at King Fahd International Air Base, which was a remote air base. King Fahd was building an airport for himself, I guess, and the only thing there was a parking deck. Okay. And so the Air Force came in, we landed our, we extended the runway, we landed our A-10s on the runway, and um, when I arrived, there was a few tents of the Myrtle Beach uh, Air Force Base mm -hmm. unit there, that's where the A-10s came from. And there was probably 10 or 12 tents. Finally, we extended it. We set up many tents. We paved some roads so it wasn't so dusty. Right. And we got a chow hall and 
some amenities. When we first got there, we ate MREs every single day. You know, we had shower, limited showers. It was, it was a time like we got off the bus. We didn't know what we were going into. Right. We, we didn't know what to expect in our minds. I think everybody was probably thinking something different. But we were bused from Dahran to King Fahd because it was remote. They couldn't land large aircraft there. They were only landing the A-10s. Right. Okay. Um, how much interaction do you have with the Saudis when you're there? I mean, we worked with them every day. We had posts that we worked with them. They wouldn't put me at a post that a, a Saudi was at. But they did. They were on patrol around our base. And they would stop at my gate and, and chat. Most of them kind of flirted more than respect, but um, right. it, they didn't seem to be overly insulted or anything like that. But I was not allowed to work a post that they were alone with a, a Saudi. Right. Okay. Um, I imagine you're probably one of the first, if not the first, female in the military, because they, they don't have females in the military there, correct? Right, I don't. I doubt it. You're, you're probably, you might be the first one they've ever seen. They ever saw. Yeah. There was a few nurses there before me, but they probably didn't have any interaction with right. any of the Saudis. They were strictly in the hospital. So, so you get there. You're part of the initial deployment. Right. right. Build up towards, towards. Right. I got there in um, in September. I spent my birthday there, my twentieth birthday. Okay. Um, so what's what's it like? What's what's your day to day activities as you're, as you're ramping um, up to the? To the well, occasion? first we were assigned whether we were night shift or day shift, and I was put on day shift, okay. which I was really glad because I didn't like night shift. But a lot of the guys wanted nights because it was a little bit cooler. But um, I worked day shift. It was hot. I mean, there's nothing you could do. Right. We we had a garden on every morning. We formed up, and then we were to walk to our post. So you could walk a couple miles to get to your post, and then whoever was there that just worked for 12 hours has to wait for you to get there, mm -hmm. and then they have to walk back to the tent. Right. Um, so is it just, I mean, the Saudis are there obviously because it's their country, are there any other, is it just American forces there, or does other, other countries start rolling in? Um, there was just Americans at our post because we were so remote. Okay. We had a mass unit on our post and eventually they set up a POW camp on our post okay. but um, it was mainly just Air Force we ended up working with the 82nd Airborne Division on some of our outposts mm -hmm. it was one of us and one of them there when we would do um, patrols around the desert we would run it run into some you know right. Bedouins out there they didn't seem to mind us we didn't bother them. They, we would talk. They would give us their food. Mm -hmm. They, they were very grateful we were there. Right, right. What, what, what month? You said this is ninety one or ninety. Ninety. At what month were you deployed? I, I was deployed in in August. August. Okay. So you're four months before we would be invasion. Right. Next. Yeah. The buildup. Um, I, I could see it progressively. I mean, we got there at ten to twelve tenths, and then by the time we left, it was almost unrecognizable. Right. We had the Puerto Rican National Guard come in to relieve us, so they were there as a changeover. Right. Um, a, a lot of the National Guard troops from around the country started coming in. Right. So talk about um, when the invasion begins. 
we were nervous. I mean, we were at an A-10 base, so we knew it was coming. If yeah. it wasn't for that, we wouldn't really know too much right. because the pilots, I worked a post that guarded the, the pilots' living quarters. Right. And I became very good friends with them. Right. They were, um, they were helpful. They were calming to me. Um, they were older. Right. Um, if I got sick, the, the flight doc took care of me. Because right. I saw him every single day. It was, you know, it's who my friends were. Right. Um, so we knew when the pilots were going up that that was it. And when, when did you know? How, how soon? I don't remember how soon. Before. You know, you just lose track of time and dates over there. It just, it, we didn't know. All we know was we were supposed to be for there for three months and our three months had passed. Right. And there was no ending at this point. Right. You know, we were promised to be home by Christmas. And when I was watching the Bob Hope show, right. we knew that was not I'm happening. Yeah. <laughs> what, what changes? So now, now the invasion, um, or the war begins, I guess, so we go from Desert Shield to Desert Storm. What what changes, if anything, from your perspective? Well, security heightened, for one. Um, some people that were allowed to come on post were not allowed anymore mm -hmm. because we, we did have um, civilian contractors from Turkey and other countries that were contractors on our base. Now they were no longer allowed to be on our post. Uh, on February 2nd, one of my friends who flew an A-10 was shot down. And I think that's when it hit me that this is real. Right. Because up until then, it wasn't. You know, I was 19. I think you look at the world in a different way when you're 19. But when you lose someone, it, it changes perspective. So they were killed in action? He was not killed in action. Okay. He, we, his, you know, when they take the eight tens up, they go out in groups. They right. did not see him eject. So he was held as a POW, which we didn't know. We okay. were told he was killed in action because nobody saw him eject. He did eject. And he, when they released the prisoners, he was amongst those that were released. But it was all to our shock. Right. I mean, in our minds, he wasn't here anymore. How, how far from Kuwait are you, where, where your base is located? I'm not, we were not very far. We were one of the forward air base. Miles-wise, I, I don't know. Most of that was kept secret from us. Right, okay. <laughs> so was there any fear of, of, of the war coming to you? To you? I mean, we had you scud. pretty secure. We had scud attacks, okay. several. Okay. We had warnings. The alarms would go off in the middle of the night. We'd go to our... Um, our sand pit kind of control area. I probably wouldn't have done anything right. <laughs> if it made us feel safe. But if a scud hit us, those little sandbags wouldn't have done anything. Right. I don't. Now, are you working in mop gear at this point? We did a lot okay. work in mop gear. Um, but then they they're like, well, they only they expire. So now we're working in expired mop gear. A, a lot of the stuff. We weren't told, we weren't trained in. I don't think the Air Force even knew these aren't gonna these aren't gonna last the entire deployment. Right. 
For someone who's not familiar with mop gear in the hot sun <laughs> that, of the desert, ex can you explain what that is and what uh -oh. it's like to work in it? It's it's very hot. It's very thick. It's bulky. It's uncomfortable. It's very hot. And the temperatures in Saudi were 130 degrees easy during the day. Right. And with the sun beating on you, reflecting off the sand, I'm sure that increases the temperature. Some of our outposts, you were stuck out there and you had a sandbag or two and that was it. We had no shade, we had no cover, we had no concealment. We just had some barbed wire and some sandbags. Eventually they built us like a little shack to get out of the sun and into the shade. But that did take a while before we could get some some construction going on in the tent or in the tent city to build it up. Um, so the mop gear expires. I want to say thirty days. Does that 30, sound right? Yeah, that, that's open? what I was thinking. It's about thirty so, days. So do you guys know that? We we, we knew it was expired, but it's all we had. What could you do? Yeah, it's all we had, and it was better than nothing. How 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 fearful were you? Um, that they would use chemicals. Oh, we were very fearful. Like, very. You didn't go anywhere without it. We took it on and off more times than I care to remember. The gas masks. I mean, the gas masks were probably from Vietnam. Like, they were old. Eventually, they got new ones in, and it was like a sigh of relief, and you were fighting to get one of the new ones. Right. It was, it was nerve-wracking. And then they told us to take the PB pills, or... No, they nicknamed them birth control pills. Right. Some people took them, some people didn't. Now, people that took them, I think, are learning some side effects of them. I started to take them, and my good friend who I went through training with, he's like, don't take them, don't take them. And I, I was like, okay. So I stopped taking them. Thankful to him, I listened. Right. And now, what were those supposed to combat? I think it was supposed to combat neurological effects from, from, from the, yeah, from, from chemical warfares. Okay. Is there any degree of, of um, trust that the mop gear that you have is even going to work? Yeah, no. I mean, the masks, you say it's Yeah, the masks were old. old. So and you're not they confident at all? No. No. But it's all we had. It's all yeah. It's all we had. And our, our chemical alarms went off often. They always told us they're false alarms. But after reading all the research now, they're saying, no, they weren't really false alarms. There was some chemical agent in the air. You don't know the real story. Right. Was um, was your post ever directly hit? Uh, we were hit very closely, yeah. but we had, you know, we had the the army close by, and they were intercepting most of the scuds. Okay. But I mean, we could feel shaking on the ground, and we could hear it, we could see it. Right. Especially at night, you could see. And then at one point, the Air Force thought it would be great to smoke out our base, so they smoked out our base for two days. And what does that mean? they put the entire base in smoke, so you couldn't see maybe your hand. Okay. So, you know, they were trying to see if they could conceal our base from the airspace. Okay. So we had to live like that, inhaling the smoke, breathing it, trying to deal day-to-day -day life and protection in a cloud of smoke. That was before the war. But it, it was helpful after the oil well started burning and our base did get very dark. Mm. I have pictures of the sky. It was daytime. The sky is completely black from oil wells burning nearby. Right. Um, so during, during Desert 
storm. How, how many combat sorties do you think they're flying out? Is it constant? Or oh, it's constant, yeah, day and night. Yeah, it's constant. The pilots were just coming and going. And they would tell me stories, you know, as they came back in, how many they got, or footage, or... Right. It was... Now, are you able to follow what's going on um, in the media or anything like that? Not, not really. I was allowed some phone calls home. Eventually, they got some telephones there that we could call okay. home occasionally. Luckily, my dad worked in the Pentagon, and I was able to call him very easily because it's a government phone to a government phone. Right. Um, he would update me sometimes, but you weren't allowed to say a lot of information over the telephone right. because they weren't secure lines. But he would tell me how America was reacting at home. Like what my mom worked at a daycare center at the time, and she brought a little nine-inch TV to work every, every day, so she could watch it and see and hope to see me or, you know, listen for information. My my brothers and sisters were like nine and ten. I think for them it was really hard to have me over there. I would get letters from them. They don't understand what's going on. Right. They're they're at an age that they think they understand and they want to understand, but their brains aren't ready to. It was it was hard to know that they were back there. And right. then also to know that I volunteered to go. Right. <laughs> now your father obviously he was in Vietnam, so he's right. got a little different perspective than your mother would have, correct? Right. Was there any difference in dealing with mom and dad? Did oh, you only call huge. dad and mom? I, I tried to call dad, okay. yeah. And he kind of knew what you were going through. Right. I called When I called from Dover, before we left, I called to tell them goodbye. And my father's, I can still remember it, his um, tip was for me not to come home a hero. That is, in at first it didn't sink in, like, right. why? Why would you not mean to be amazing? And then, you know, you realize most of the heroes don't come home alive. So you realize what the implications of that right. are once you... But when, you know, age had a lot to do with it. I think if I deployed older, maybe I would have known more. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, you just don't have a lot of life skills when right. you're 19 years old. Especially growing up in my kind of house. Mm-hmm. I, I was you know, from a large family, and we were a military family, but we didn't own a TV until I was probably in high school. We didn't know what was going on in the world. It didn't matter to us. We had our family, and that was all we had. My right. Both my parents are only children. We didn't have aunts or uncles. We didn't visit anybody. We didn't go on vacations. Right. We just had our family, and that's all we knew. Um, do you have any down, downtime while you're there at all? We did. Any recreation or anything like that? We, we, initially we worked 12 to 15 hours a day, and then we slept. We had to do our laundry. Uh, the laundry facilities were buckets they had lined up in the sand, the big yellow buckets like you see a janitor mopping mm-hmm. with. That's where we washed our laundry. We probably had to walk a mile to wash our laundry. So downtime was doing chores like that that needed to be done you had to hang your clothes inside the tent because they had um sandstorms that would come by and if your clothes were hanging outside they would get full of sand um one time i remember i was walking back from the laundry facility and i tripped and fell and i had my gas mask and my m16 with my 203 
my laundry and my soap spilled all over my wet laundry. I thought I was going to lose it. I had a nervous breakdown. I just sat there like, now I have to go back. I have to rinse all of this soap in a bucket out of my laundry. And I thought, I just, I, I can't do this anymore. But I could. Right. <laughs> I could. There was deeper thoughts than that. Um, any recreation time at all? Uh, anything? Eventually they set up a movie tent, so okay. we were able to watch some movies. It was just a tent with some benches and a big screen, and they said they just played movies 24 hours a day. So no matter what shift you were working, right. you could always go in there. And I remember watching a rock, Rocky, I think, came out. And um, so that was big. Everybody was excited about that. And then, of course, the... The big debate over weight, whether they should have the um, the football game, the uh, Super Bowl, <laughs> Super Bowl, okay. and they were they were going to cancel it in honor of all these veterans mm. fighting. And the veterans were like, "We wanted it. Yeah. We wanted something other than what we're looking at." So, you know, that was exciting, especially for football, you know, fans. They were able to go in the Big Ten and watch the Super Bowl, right. and then they had a church that they put in the tent next door. Everything was kind of booked together. And um, me and my friends would go to church. And, I mean, he tried. He had pictures hanging in the tent. He tried to make it look like a, a church. And they would do different services at different times. And then eventually the rec came in and they set up rec tents like um, ping pong and weightlifting. And there were some outlets like that eventually. Right. It took a while, probably three or four months. But it was exciting every yeah. little step of the way. It was also nerving knowing that it was more permanent for us. Right. Like this doesn't have an end anymore compared to our three months. Right. Uh, so how long you end up being there? I was there for eight months, I think. Okay. Is there anything that stands out more than anything else? The people. Um, I'm still friends with them today. They're probably some of my closest um, friends I can rely on I can count on when they come in town they call um, yeah it's a close bond it's and it was hard to be a, a female over there because it's hard to overstep your boundaries of interfering with what the wife thinks that your intention is right um, so guys would come and just sit outside my tent and just talk and I think that's what they missed was female interaction, talking with their wife or their little girls. Um, they would just come by and just talk. And that's all they wanted. Just Right. I imagine, every, every, obviously, everybody there was in, in the same boat. They no combat experience. I mean, that's right. done yeah. for everybody. Yeah. So you're all kind of we were all living new. it at the same time. Yeah. My tech sergeant that brought us over probably had... I don't know, 10 kids that were 19 years old. Right. You know, wow. we didn't have combat or life experience at all. But it it teaches you to be strong right. and to know you can do things that you didn't think you could possibly do. Right. Um, talk about your homecoming. Uh, my homecoming was awesome. We, well, we were told we were going to be shipped out and then our plane broke down on our base. So then we were stuck there another week. So, of course, it was calling mom, telling her I wasn't coming home when right. I thought I was. But we flew into straight from our base, which was 
unusual because when we first got there, we couldn't fly into our base. But we flew straight from King Fahd, and we landed in Germany. And when we got off the airport, we all ran to the grass, and we were rolling around <laughs> in the grass. And, of course, the people in Germany are on the flight line are like, get off the grass. We didn't care. So then they sent us in the chow hall, and we just ate. And then from Germany, we went to, um, we landed back at Dover Air Force Base. And we didn't know what was happening. We landed. They took all of our weapons, and we were like, you know, we've been carrying and sleeping and showering with this thing for nine months. And so we handed them over. And as soon as we crossed through this tent, all of our family was there. And it was very emotional. Yeah. It didn't dawn on me, like, the pain and pressure that my parents had to live through. I knew what, what I was doing over there. I knew how safe I was. I knew what my living conditions were. My mom didn't. I think sometimes it's easier. It's easier to be over there. Than it is for yeah. I, after dealing with that, yeah, I can yeah. see that. Yeah. Um, how do you think, looking back on this, that, that that experience has affected your life? Oh, it's made me stronger. It's made me a leader. It's made me very proud to be an American. And you fight for what you want. You got to stand up for yourself, and you have to be. Who you believe in. Any regrets that you volunteered? No. Not even for a second. Did your mom eventually find out that you volunteered? I don't or is she think still so. in the dark? I don't know. <laughs> My sister well, might sure be she'll little... see this. <laughs> <laughs> My sister might be a little upset that I missed her wedding, but Yeah, not not for a second would I ever re- regret going over there. Somebody's going to watch this, your mom might watch it, or great-grandkids one day. Is there anything you want to tell them about your service? Um, That I'm proud to have served. I think everybody should serve if it's in their heart. You can't force people to serve. Um, It changes your life. It It really does. If I never joined, I just wonder what... I would have become, right. you know, it, the Air Force told me I was going to be a police officer. After I got out of the Air Force, I became a police officer. Then I married a police officer and we have seven children. If it never made me a police officer, I don't know what I would have, my life would have been different. Uh, is there anything else that you want to talk about that we didn't, haven't talked about? Mm-hmm. I don't, I can't think of anything. Got everything. Okay. On behalf of the American Wartime Museum, I want to thank you, first and foremost, for your service. And I want to thank you for taking time and sitting down with us and telling your story. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you'd like to find out more about the Voices of Freedom Project and the Americans in Wartime Experience, or if you'd like to donate, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.